So uh, a few things. I'll see how much I can cover because uh, there is a few things I want to cover today. So the first thing is that uh, I got some questions which I think are kind of uh, within the theme, so to speak. So the first one is a very practical question about when we focus on the breath, on what part of the body should we focus? Some traditions say to focus on the nostril, but as I understood it, in the sound tradition, we focus on the entire body when observing the breath coming in and out. That's what I have thought to do with initial focus on the belly. Have I understood correctly? So the focus of the breath in terms of the sound tradition, there is very little about that in the sound tradition because that's not really necessarily a traditional thing to do, to focus on the breath. So often, yeah, one can focus on the whole breath, but the one thing they would say often is really to focus in the belly in terms of the breath. So I think what you are doing uh, is totally fine, totally appropriate. And then the bottom line is, does it work for you? Do you find it helpful to focus on the breath in that way? Because with the breath, the important thing is not to force the breath, not to control the breath, or focusing on it make a stance. So what you do is totally appropriate, especially if it suits you. Then there was a very interesting question, uh, which I, I'm going to read it all because I think it's such an interesting point in terms of the meditation and also the coronavirus situation. I am finding this year, the questioning is often bringing up profound feelings of dread and horror with powerful images of wide open spaces and cliff edges. I can come back from this by using the body usually, but I also notice the first thing that happens is often a comforting thought, usually a memory of perhaps a loved one or a happy time that passes and I'm with my feet and belly. And it made me think of consolation in this quite challenging time and using what is a challenging meditation. For example, I have a beautiful blossom tree in my garden, which bring me great comfort to look at. Also the birds and the feeder. What role does consolation play in our understanding of the prominency of human life? And is it okay to take comfort from intransitant things which we know are impermanent? Especially the issue of pleasant memory. I wonder how this link with mudita. So here I think there is an interesting point because in a way, yes, uh, what is this often is something which is a little kind of confront confrontational, like, you know, what is this? And kind of creatively engaging with what's going on. But if we say creatively engaging with what's going on, actually it don't just means to be there. That I think is very important. It don't just mean to be there. But actually, I think the point is very good. The point about consolation, the point of bringing something pleasant. Because I think sometimes, especially at this time, 
you could say there are so many unpleasant things. We are kind of confronted with our own uh, experience, which at times can be unpleasant, and also the experience of others who can be very unpleasant. And so in a way, we need to balance that out. We actually some pleasant feeling tone, some pleasantness. So I think, in a way, this is where balance comes in. I think balance actually is to remind ourselves, oh yeah, I feel a little kind of anxious and I feel a little kind of agitated or whatever it is. And of course, this is impermanent, but we could also help the impermanence. I think we have to be careful that impermanence doesn't become too much this abstract thing but more to see that, yes, sometimes we can just wait for things to pass, but sometimes we could help them to pass in a creative, wise way, or to bring what I would call a little space. And so in that way, looking at the tree, looking at the bird, having a pleasant memory without grasping at it, I think actually can be so helpful. And of course, it's one of the practices we find, which is mudita, which is appreciative joy, altruistic joy, so that we not just focus on what is unpleasant, but we can shift the focus time to time to what is pleasant. And actually, this is also something that the Buddha suggested in one of the sutta, when we have a very difficult mental state, to actually turn the attention to something which is more pleasant, more opening, more calming. So kind of just to see, we can, of course, come back to the difficult after that, but maybe from an easier place. And then there is a question. I have been exploring the question, what is kindness for myself? How can it be something separate to myself? And the act of kindness be something in themselves without expecting reward or somehow absolve me of being a bad person, like kind of feel guilty. Alors, I think two points here. Uh, there is one point about that when we talk about compassion, we need to have in a way as much compassion for ourselves as for others. I mentioned it already briefly that in a way, at one side of the equation, we might have more compassion for someone else, or on the other side of the equation, yourself. If you are ill, then you need to have more compassion for yourself, and then sometimes it's more in the middle. And so I think with compassion, what meditation can help us to see is our limit. So for example, if we have to deal with a difficult person, compassion helps us to be with that difficult person, but also compassion for ourselves, sets limits. That yes, I will be with, try to spend some time with that person, knowing that I'm going to spend 30 minutes, let's say, with the person on the phone or a distance of two meters if I need to bring them something. And then to know that for this 30 minutes, I'm going to try to bring some balance, some kindness to the encounter. But then after 30 minutes, I'm going to try to leave it there. But you know, what is difficult is often we bring it with us. I should have done this and could not they be different or whatever. And often to me, what helps with uh, difficult people is to know that in a way, I only have to spend 
30 minutes with the person, I don't know, once a week on the phone or in person, but they have to spend 24 hours, seven days a week with themselves. So in a way, if they are difficult, it often because they feel very difficult uh, feelings or in a difficult situation. But at the same time, you have to protect yourself because somebody who is difficult can be a little overwhelming. So then that's a limit. Okay, 30 minutes once a week or 10 minutes once a day, whatever is a condition. So I think it's very important to see what is a limit. Then often there is kind of like, that's one of the strong ideas of my teacher, Master Kulan, which I thought was very beautiful. He thought that when you gave something, when we, you had compassion for somebody and you did something, actually to look at what you gave or what you did as if you were giving a dirty mop, which would mean no expectation. You know, like you give a dirty mop to somebody, you don't think they're going to say, wow, great, fantastic, you know, I'm so grateful. Because it's interesting, we, we kind of are compassionate and often we wait something, either that they change or either that they say thank you. And sometimes they cannot change or they cannot change now. And sometimes they don't say thank you. And is that going to stop us uh, from being there for them at that moment? So again, kind of looking, that's an interesting thing. When we give something or we're compassionate, what's a little bit behind it? And then at the same time, I think we have to be very careful to not think of compassion as what I call heroic compassion. I must save the world. I must always be there, however difficult the person. Not, not. Uh, this doesn't make us a bad person. And we generally, I would say, do the best we can within the limitation. And to see the other person has limitation, and I also have limitation. So really to kind of, you know, to see generally we do the best we can, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, and kind of, you know, have this kind of also kindness to ourselves, you know, to, to be careful that if somebody wants too much, you won't be able to give to them anyway. But that doesn't mean you cannot give a little bit. I think it's kind of what we have to be careful there. And of course, uh, if the person is abusive, then I would say avoid them if you can. Or of course, denounce them to the police if you can. No, no. I think when we talk of compassion, we talk of wisdom and compassion. And that's why I say like, if somebody is abusive, you have to be more compassionate to yourself. And I personally, I was help when I was in England, I used to help out with a, a battered women refuge. And of course, the thing, uh, the women were told, you have to get out, you have to denounce a person. So it's always wisdom, it's not regardless. It's always there is wisdom. And in a way, you are also a human being. So you are also a sentient being who has to save oneself. As Stephen says, sentient beings are normalless. I'm bound to save them. But you are one of them too. So you're trying to save yourself too. So really, of course, if somebody is abusive, you could say you can have compassion, but from very far, as far as you can, if it's possible. 
Okay, so then I think I have done the question. And now uh, I want to look a little bit, actually, so we're actually moving a little bit what I want to talk about, which is in the song tradition, you have this text, which uh, I translated, and it's in a book which is called uh, The Path of Compassion. Uh, it's uh, distributed by uh, Yale University Press. And the reason I translated the text was that every two weeks, uh, I would listen to it when I was a nun in Korea. And over time, as I could understand the Korean much better, then I could see that, ah, the way they behave is because they're following this text. And Stephen yesterday was talking a little bit about what one could call situational ethics. And I think, to me, that text is kind of very interesting because it shows ethics from so many different points of view. And, you know, you can see some of the precepts are really specific to the time. Some of the precepts are basically about being in competition with other groups. And some of the precepts, and that's why I like the text, are really relevant to us now. And so I just wanted to mention, just very briefly, because I don't have much time, just a few of them. And also to, to look at how does the text look at the ethical attitude, at the act. To me, that's what is kind of interesting to reflect on. So the first one is somewhat, I mean, is one we kind of really know very well. Refrain from taking life. But what then he goes on to explain, because there is always a little explanation, a disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing himself, by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, etc., etc. So here, what is interesting is not saying just don't take life, don't kill, or you could take it as don't harm, because we generally don't go around killing people. But in a way, kind of like it's kind of looking. It's not just about not doing it, but am I doing it? Am I causing harm by actually kind of pushing somebody else to harm somebody else? Am I doing it in an indirect way? So personally, I find it so interesting to reflect, not to think, oh, I cause harm, I am a bad person, but more, hmm, what are the cause and condition of this? How did I cause harm? What happened? What was the automatic reaction? Is there a different way that I could creatively engage with the situation? Then there is an even better one. I really love this one. And this one is about refrain from telling lies. But then the book, a disciple of the Buddha must refrain from telling lies either by doing so herself by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, one must never create the causes and conditions for telling lies, devise a means for doing so, or actually tell them himself, and my favorite one. The person must not convey the impression that she saw something 
that she did not see or one did not see something that one saw. So here, and then, either by physical gesture or by mental intention. So this is really kind of getting in the nitty gritty. But, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean we must never tell lies or whatever it is, but it's interesting. If we tell lies, what's behind it? But also, do we make it so that somebody else tells lies on our behalf? Do we kind of like kind of uh, saying something, but actually by our gesture, are meaning something else? Are we kind of sending mixed message or mixed signal? So in a way, it's kind of like this precept is in rela relationship to words, which I'll talk more about soon. Kind of, you know, how do we handle facts? How do we handle truth? How, it's kind of really interesting. So in a way to see that ethics is not so much about don't do this, but here is really looking at the causes and condition for doing this and how one would go about doing that. And so it's really an exploration. So it's not about making us feel bad or make us feel good, but more about how does it work? Harming somebody. How does it work? Telling lies. Then you have one which I'll just tell the title because it's a kind of an interesting title. Refrain from reviling others in order to spare yourself. And that's kind of the case he gives in point is the fact that, you know, if you see beggars and then you think, oh, that beggars, they're beggars because he's that and another. And then by kind of putting them down, then you pass and you don't give anything to them. And I follow somebody on Twitter, which is a very uh, kind man who is a hairdresser. And one of these, I mean, now he cannot do it at the moment, but uh, what he used to do before was to kind of give haircut to homeless people and not just as a mean to do some good thing, but actually as a mean to engage with them and engage with their story. So his thing was not so much that it gives them a good, a better look, but more that through this action of helping them, he could then kind of get to know them and they could experience being seen as a full human being and having a full human being interaction. Somebody really interested in their story, in their life. And so I think in a way, this is a little bit what this is about, how sometimes we might put people down in order not to kind of, you know, put ourselves out or do something or feel a little uncomfortable, one could say. Then uh, one of my other favorite ones, is not so much for the title, uh, it's uh, for the little bit. It's refrain from being angry when someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat that person well. But the, I don't have so much time, so I won't go into it, but just this. The person should always present a compassionate state of mind. If on the contrary, a bodhisattva should abuse a living creature or vent his anger on an inanimate object, 
his anger remained unappeased, this would be a serious transgression. But this text was created in the fourth century, fifth century in China. And when I read this, I think, you know, about Chinese people, kind of, kind of so long ago from us, but not very different from us. Venting their anger on an inanimate object was not kicked his computer or the car or this is not working and kind of, and so in a way it's kind of like, how do I deal with anger? But also, how do I deal with forgiveness? I think this is kind of like, uh, we don't have the time really to look into it, but kind of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? Uh, what, is, what does it mean to open to somebody doing something which is hurtful and at the same time not, in a way, condoning the action, kind of, kind of seeing the person and not condoning the action. Because it's kind of, Stephen used to be a prison chaplain. And then he would see the human being, but of course he would not kind of think that what these people had done to get in jail was a good thing. But apart from the action, he could also be, have some uh, compassion for the person. And I think this is the same here, when somebody asks for forgiveness, kind of like, if it's a deep, I mean, if they ask from a good place, doesn't mean somebody could ask you for forgiveness, but they're not going to change, that's always a little problematic. But when here is that the person is really sincere and really wants to change. And in a way, can we have compassion and not continue to be angry with the person? And that's not easy. I'm not saying this is easy, but can we bring creative-wise compassion to it? And the last one, because this is a time of coronavirus, is actually a beautiful one. And it says, care well for those who are sick. Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for him, her, or they, as he would, as she would, for the Buddha himself. So, you know, it's kind of really seeing every, people who are ill as really kind of if one is taking care of the Buddha. So, kind of, so I just wanted to talk a little bit of this precept and kind of about ethics, but it's kind of a short way. Because I want to finish, uh, we're looking a little bit at listening meditation. I mean, of course, if you want to continue uh, to do the questioning meditation, this is, uh, of course, fine. But I wanted to point out, because it's our last uh, instruction, listening meditation. So in a way, breath can bring calm. Questioning can bring brightness. And I think listening meditation can bring openness. It really helps us. And also, it's also less personal. I kind of... Uh, uh, kind of Listening to sound, generally we don't generate the sound. And so it's kind of helping us to be with what is unreliable, what is we don't know when a sound is going to happen. We don't know how long the sound is going to last. And so in a way, with this listening meditation, really listening to sound as they arise. Some just arise and pass away. And some continue and then we try to go inside the sound just be aware of the sound as it changes and in a way try to listen to the sound for itself 
and not go into the commenting because we kind of very quickly go into the commenting. Oh, this is this sound, that sound. I like it, I don't like it. We might be of that. And here we're just aware of the sound for itself. And what is interesting here is that often it can change our relationship to sound. So personally, I think it's kind of a wonderful practice because it can help us to what I call creative wise listening. Because this is one of the practices which I find can be so useful in daily life is creative wise listening. And then we can kind of question, how do we listen? And generally, I would say we listen in three ways. One way, we listen and we wait for the person to stop so we can say something so much more interesting. So then actually we do three things. We listen to the person one third. We try to remember the thing which is so much more interesting that we're going to say one third. And then we wait for them to stop one third. I would, I would say this is not really listening. The next one is really fascinating. You look in the right direction. The person is talking to you and you think of something else. And when they stop and they ask you, what do you think? You have no idea what they say. Not very helpful. Or you listen to what they say and you grasp at it and you amplify it. And that often is not so helpful. And then with this practice of just listening to sound for themselves, bringing that way of listening to people to really listen to what they have to say. Just listen, give them their full attention, 100%, without preparing. And what is interesting is that when you reply to the person or talk to the person, often you're surprised that you say something totally relevant, totally appropriate. You never thought of it before. And in a way, you learn the opportunity to do this this afternoon because this afternoon, the way we'd like it to, to be, because that will be our final session with you. So at 2 p.m. UK time, 3 p.m. French time, and then you have many other time, appointed time, we start by 10 minutes yet. So everybody who wants to be there for that bit can be there. Then after 10 minutes, we will go in breakout session of four. And so that's Zoom is going to do it. So it's going to be like you're going to end up with two or three other people. And then you can share your experience and talk and listen and practice these creative wise speech and creative wise listening and also get to know a little each other. And then at 2.30 UK time, we'll have the concluding remark. So for the people who want to be in the breakout group, please join us at 2. And for the people who want, who, for whatever reason, don't want to be in the breakout group, then you can join us at 2.30 UK time. And in a way, personally, I think this is this breakout groups as we have this distanciation nowadays, uh, and that's why we're doing this course uh, with this medium, is an opportunity to be with other people. We don't know them, but 
they are human beings like ourselves. They have the same intention to develop wisdom and compassion and can we share something together? And I think especially at this time of coronavirus, I think it can be very helpful. So then you would have really the opportunity to creative listening with another person. And then now we're going to do 30 minutes of meditation. And then if you want, again, as I mentioned previously, if you have tinnitus ringing in the ears, and if your room where you are doing this is very quiet, I would not do listening meditation because then tinnitus becomes even worse sometimes. So then I would do more the question or more the breath or something else, which can leave the tinnitus in the background. But if you don't, also some people who don't have a, who have hard of hearing and can't hear very much again, I would not recommend to do this meditation if you cannot hear very much and just more the breath, the question. Or like me, where I am, it's fairly quiet. Then what I do in terms of listening, I just, uh, in a way, listen to the silence. So I really rest in the silence. Because when we do the listening meditation, we can do it in two ways, two main ways. One way is to, in a way, just be aware of specific sound. So generally, you're not looking for the sound, but generally your attention goes to the sound you hear the most, according to your acuity of hearing. So there is a sound, you really hear it, you're focused on it, and then it goes. And then your attention goes to another sound, and then it goes. Or there is a more continuous sound, and then you can go inside the sound and just experience its changing nature. Or you might not have any sound at all, and then you just sit there and kind of really have a wide open awareness. And just in a way listening at that moment to the music of life, which will be fairly silent. And yes, kind of in a way resting in the silence. So that's what I would suggest that we do now for the next 25 minutes. And before we start it, maybe to stand up and stretch a little, and then we sit just for a few seconds. So if we can find a comfortable posture, the back is straight, the shoulders are relaxed and open. And then gently opening our friendly awareness, right awareness to sound to the music of life, without grasping at any sound, without rejecting any sound.
Donc, uh, merci pour votre pratique. Thank you for your practice. And uh, so if we want just to stand and stretch just uh, a minute, briefly, and then you can start putting your question or your comment. Is there a connection between feeling tall and the question, what is this? This is a kind of like an interesting question because uh, I am very interested in the feeling tall. And personally, what I wonder, but this is a little technical, and so I would have to talk a long time about feeling tall, which I don't have the time at the moment. But the Buddha, in one of the ancient texts, talks about 108 types of Vedana, feeling tone. So the tonality upon contact, which is often characterized as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And one of the types of uh, feeling tone the Buddha talks about is what he calls the tonality which is coming from inside. So you have ordinary tonality, and generally this leads to grasping or pushing away. But then you can have experience of tonality which comes from the fact that you have an insight. And then I think when we cultivate the sensation of questioning, I wonder if we're not cultivating in a way that type of Vedana, which actually has a kind of effect of brightening and uplifting. So that personally is where I would make a little bit the connection together. Because I mean, I did a conference and a friend of mine kind of was trying to connect the two together and he wrote a paper on that. And possibly if the person who is interested, which was Edith, if you send me an email on my website, then I'll send you his paper just about that, if you're interested. Uh, so, uh, Okay, okay. Uh, with tinnitus, could you listen to recording of birth song or water, for instance? I would say yes. I think that if you want to do listening meditation and you have strong tinnitus, I think yes, listening to birth song or water could be a good way to do that practice and help with the fact that the tinnitus, if you're sitting in a silent place, will be very predominant. So yeah, I would say this is a very good idea. Uh, then this question, I wanted to ask why does the body resist meditation with its aches and pain? But should, but should this be why, why do I resist the body resisting meditation? I think we have to see that in terms of body, we're not all equal. I mean, some of us have more pain, some of us has less pain. I have friends that can sit for hours. And is it because their mind is really equanimous? Is it because they're resistant? Is it because they have no pain in the body? I think you can have many different things there. So personally, I think, especially if we start meditation, first we will have actually just sitting still. We're not used to stay, sitting still. So in a way, our body has to learn to sit still. And then our mind then is not kind of used to, to be still. So again, we have to learn to do that. And so I think a bit of body aches and pain, I think is really normal. But if they are too much of that, then what I would really recommend 
is actually just lying down. Another thing I would recommend, especially if we start meditating, is short sitting. If we want to sit short sitting, or really also exploring the walking meditation, which for some people is so much easier. So really exploring the four different postures of standing, lying down, walking, and sitting. I think this is very important. Then, I, Martin, after your instruction yesterday, I'm trying not to scratch my nose in sitting, but I find often that I only know I am going to do it after the event. Do you have advice? Well, actually, I would say meditation, and I mean, it's so strange at this corona time where they say, don't touch your face. And then you realize how much you kind of touch your face. And, and so, uh, personally, I would say it's just bringing attention to it. So in a way, oh, I have done that. And then, so you know, you have the movement of going to the nose, for example, or to the face. And then what becomes interesting is actually what started it. So in a way, then we start to, at the moment, it's very automatic. But then if we become more aware of the sensation, and then if we learn to be with the sensation, then actually it becomes much less automatic. Actually, we can more creatively engage with it. Yeah, some people are appreciating the listening meditation. And somebody noticing a tendency to focus on the pigeon and then opening out to other birds and sound. Yeah, I think really this is showing like you can hear something more and so just be with that. And then you can also open it to kind of a widen array of sound. So, okay, I'm going through a difficult situation right now. I can feel my stomach aching. Does meditation of listening or breathing help in your opinion more? If you, I mean, for whatever reason, if your stomach is aching, possibly sitting might not be a good idea because when we sit, this kind of little kind of, they might be bringing a little more tension. So I would say maybe lying down meditation first would be better. And then again, listening meditation could be helpful with bringing a kind of an open space. Uh, again, breathing as long as it can calm us and not tighten us. And then possibly uh, some kind of friendliness. I think some kind of friendly practice also could be helpful when we have a difficult situation because you have quite a bit of uh, unpleasant feeling tones. So kind of bring, as a person was saying, kind of bring something a little pleasant. Although it's difficult, what are the things which briefly bring me a little joy? I think that can also kind of uh, help out. And so that's where the mudita, the appreciative joy practice also can be helpful at this time. Does Korean song include any kind of meta practice? So in a way, a Korean song, no. Does it have meta practice as such, apart from, you see, they do the ethics part in a different way. They do the compassion part in a different way. So that's, it's more into ethics than into the meditation itself. So personally, I would say, that was my experience, doing the song practice, actually will dissolve the self-centeredness so you become more compassionate anyway. So I think 
That's where the meta, the friendliness will come out. But in terms of them doing something specific, you have it in the four vows. When you say, all sentient beings, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to help them all. I think that's part of their friendly meta practice. But really, the meta practice, I would say, is in the Bodhisattva precept, what I mentioned. Because this really makes a difference to the way they behave. And what is interesting there, the people, uh, the monks and the nuns take it every 15 days in the knowledge that you're going to forget, in the knowledge that, you know, you have kind of other habits, which kind of, you know, stop the friendliness, stop the compassion, so that for the monks and the nuns, you recite it, you know, uh, every two weeks. And then for the lay people, they take it every year as a reminder, this is my intention to be compassionate, to be friendly, to creatively, wisely engage. So that's where that uh, practice would be there. Um, then creative engagement really is beginning to make sense in day-to-day -day life. So glad that uh, it makes sense. Can you talk about the balance between truthfulness and compassion? What if what you want to say, we might feel like the truth for you is going to be hurtful to someone else. I know this is a bit abstract and we've been talking about situational ethics, but some comment on this balance of truth and kindness and compassion would be helpful. Yes, indeed. This is in a way wise speech. This is one of the eightfold paths, uh, creative wise listening coming with creative wise speech. So the question is about truthfulness. Do, you, do I have to say everything? I don't think we have to say everything all the time. So again, appropriate speech. When it, it appropriate to say something to somebody. So that's the first thing about the appropriateness of the time, of the doing of it. Uh, there is, in a way, in the Sun tradition, you have a teaching of the intention, the action, and the result of the action. And here, I think this is very much about that. When I want to say some truth, what's the intention behind it? How do I do it? And what is the result of that? So then that's what to me is really important, is creative wise speech. If I want to share something with somebody, how am I going to say it? And how is it going to be received? And I think, in a way, kind of there is this uh, teaching of the non-violent speech, which I think is very much about that. How can I say something which is true? But the question is, do I need to say it now at this point? Sometimes is more appropriate than other. How do I do it? Can the person hear it? So personally, in terms of this, um, truth and speech, I would really, and compassionate speech, I really can, it's kind of learning. This is really a practice, it's really exploring what is appropriate, what is suitable, how can I do it in such a way that it can be helpful and that they, the person can hear it. So that's really, I think, a beautiful practice and then we learn from our mistake. The word we use, the tone we use, the time, uh, so this morning, I listened to the sound in my garden, nothing disturbing. Often I caught up in irritation with neighbor noise. 
I noticed I rejected, tried to shut it out. My listening to that noise, sound, helped change my relationship with it. I'm concerned I might get even more sensitized to them. So again, this is, I think it will depend a little bit on how you feel in general. I mean, if you feel really kind of unpleasant, then your sensitivity is up and then anything becomes a little unpleasant sometimes. That's what is interesting sometimes. You hear a sound and it doesn't bother you, you hear the sound another time and it really irritates you. So it's interesting to look a little bit of what I would call the inner condition. But there is also the outer condition, like if the person possibly cannot help themselves, you cannot stop them, that's another story there. How can you be with it? And personally, I think this practice really helped with that. That kind of, can we see the sound not as directly attacking us? I mean, unless a neighbor does the sound specifically to annoy you, which is something else, and then you might need to try to find a way kind of to work with them if it's possible. But to see that sound generally are not how to get you. So I think just listening to sound as they arise without me mind, then actually does change the relationship to sound. So in a way, you have to see, it depends what kind of sound the neighbor is doing and how you are sensitive to sound too. I mean, sometimes if it's really too much, uh, you can also wear earplugs. I mean, sometimes we have to help ourselves. So uh, now maybe there are many questions and comments about what one should be doing or focusing on during meditation practice. After some years of practicing, I've discovered that it's more useful for people to find out what works for their body and their mind and what is more conducive to a more constructive meditation practice. The more focus there is on truth, the more it makes sound like a coercive process for which some, including me, can turn the meditation practice into a very traumatic experience. Before, because more often than not, it doesn't mean the expectation of what it is supposed to be like. Exactly. I mean, you might have noticed we are very multi-choice here, and we very much say, you know, you are your own teachers. So you really need to know for yourself. And personally, I don't think there is, we really need, we, this is what is so important, is not so much what we do in the meditation, but how we do it. So it's not so much the focus, it's not so much the technique, but can I bring a friendly attitude to it? And in a way, I let go of the should. And like in anything, try to do the best I can within the situation. So that we're not trying to make anything specific. We're really just trying to cultivate, develop something which is already there. And so kind of allow it to develop a little more. And so in a way, it's kind of like... Uh, to see that it's not so important to be with the breath or the sound or the question. Actually, I would say the main element is that time to time we come back to it. Actually, it's a coming back. But then the question is, how do I come back? And again, a friendly attitude. So I think what is the most important is a friendly attitude when we do it. To me, that's really the first thing. And then we might choose different methods at different times, 
or we trust. I think to me this is the most important. We trust our intention. Our intention, if we have been meditating for some time, we can just sit there and be with what is. I think there is also uh, that important part of not so much being in the doing of something, but just okay, just sitting there, just with the breath, or actually doing nothing. That can be also an interesting practice. Uh, so yes, somebody appreciating the listening meditation. So another person, not so much. The listening meditation did not quite work for me as I ended up listening to my own thought. I have a question though, talking about lying. If you lie about what you be, believe to be the betterment of someone or to save them from hurt or harm, is this acceptable? What are your thoughts on this? If you lie about what you believe to be the betterment of something. Yes, I mean, it's kind of a little bit what works. You know, kind of like, uh, it's kind of like, how do we help someone else? Uh, do we help someone else by just telling them not to do something? Or if that doesn't work, do we have to tell them something else which might then, in a roundabout way, bring them to what could be more helpful for them? So that is kind of like, I would say, creative engagement in terms of, am I doing it for my own sake? Am I doing it for their sake? And does it work? So here I would say, can you do the least you can to check, is it working? Kind of, you know, uh, sometimes it's more about being with the person, uh, which could just help them to have somebody who is there for them. But yes, I, I mean, there is a famous um, saying in the song tradition, knowing how to open and close the precept. And the story around it is that if you have somebody in the forest and he sees a deer going right, and then a hunter comes and says, where did the deer go? Then you tell him it went left. So yeah, I mean, of course, you can open and close the precept in terms of that. And so sometimes you have to be silent. Sometimes you might kind of, you know, fudge a little bit the truth uh, in order to help someone else. But again, to checking intention, action, and what is the result of that. Uh, last night, I had a huge sense of resistance emerging during the meditation. I was very discouraged afterward. Generally, I sleep not so well. It's something I accept. I slept very well with vibrant dream. Today, both meditation felt very rich. Do you just accept that sometimes it can feel pointless and almost destructive? Pointless, yes. Uh, in terms that sometimes you just sit there and it's just, you know, you're a little distracted, you're a little vague, you're like, why am I doing this? And, you know, and possibly then you might do like kind of a shorter session. I mean, again, it depends on your condition. I know for myself, when I was uh, sitting in meditation in Korea, at the end of the day, sometimes I had so much pain. I mean, it was like, and then, you know, I just accepted it and kind of this is stuff. And then sometimes I could see the emptiness of it. Sometimes I could not. And generally the next morning I was totally fine. And that's why 
I could, okay, in the evening it's a little more difficult. So in a way, I think <coughs> the insight is to see the impermanence of it. That I think is very important. If it seems destructive, then I would not force the meditation. I would do maybe more walking or gazing at nature. Again, uh, what the person was suggesting, doing something more soothing. So I would not, sometimes it's good to force ourselves a little bit, but not too much and not if it's destructive. But sometimes, yes, just be with hmm, nothing there. It's a little pointless. But the pointlessness too passes. And it's interesting to be with that funny feeling of, hmm, what is this about? And kind of just to be with it. How does it feel? Don't do anything with it. And like all things, generally it passes. Um, okay, then. So then there is a, a comment. Uh, I just wanted to say I've actually been ill with COVID-19. And I've been so grateful to spend this time with you. I have been very fearful at, to how poorly I could become and noticing the coming breath has been very helpful. So yeah, please keep well, please take care of yourself. And of course, thank you for all your great care. Yeah, and, and meditation can really, you see, I think it's very important not to see meditation as this hard work again back to this heroic kind of attitude and just watch the least I can and then just seeing kind of, you know, sometimes just be with the breath, just no complication. And then it can really uh, help us to calm, really to calm and to be still and then kind of ease the body and mind in difficult times. The question, what is this, led me to the wanting of trying to get answer and understanding. How can I explore the wanting to know and wanting to understand? Just feel it. You see, I think often that's what happened at the beginning of what is it. Then often you kind of get lots of answers and lots of this and that. And for some people, you, you need to have that period. And then that too goes. And just kind of how does it feel? you know, to, to, to want, to know, to understand. And can we also be with that? Of course, of course. And also see how it changes, see how it changes. Do you see meditation, the question, what is this as a mean of opening up Vipassana insight? It seems to me that the questioning nature directs the mind to look for answer, as opposed to other forms of meditation that are more about calm and focus. Yeah, uh, I would not say that the questioning, uh, what, hopefully, normally would not want to kind of like, kind of more like uh, uh, answers, but more, yes, uh, the questioning practice is very much connected to Vipassana, to insight, and it combines, you could say it combines together calming and inquiry. So often what happens with meditation is that people actually often focus much more on focusing. And so then meditation is very much associated with calm. And you could say one of the interesting things about the questioning is that it associates actually the calming element with the focusing, with the questioning element. So then the brightness is there. So it kind of 
combine really the samatha and vipassana together. So in that way, yes, the idea is very much that. I would say questioning very much about inside, but within that you also have that coming element as you come back again and again to the question. I have a combination of birth song and machine noises here. At first I found it difficult. I had a strong sense of where each sound was coming from and an aversion to the machine. Then I tried to listen to all sound as part of the same music and it felt more creative. That's the idea actually, that's the idea. I mean, it's interesting to see also, you hear little bird, and we can see, this is interesting, oh, I like this. And then you hear the noise, oh, I'm not so keen on that. And then sometimes I find, so yes, to open to all, I think can be very useful. But sometimes what I do is add a little mudita to listening to sound. So for example, if you listen, uh, once I was teaching meditation, and there were some people really doing some work on the road outside. And I was saying, you know, listen to the sound and can you have some gratefulness to the worker repairing the road, making the sound. And everybody says, oh, it changed totally the relationship to that sound. So that also can be uh, interesting. said, I, uh, I found the listening helpful. I am experiencing deep emotional conflict about my life commitment, and I find listening a beautiful antidote this morning. Yes, I mean, kind of sometimes we kind of like, oh, uh, because something is difficult, then in a way we kind of get a little reduced to that and can be a little overwhelming. And then opening to sound is like, ah, oh, opening to the whole world. I mean, there was somebody uh, who uh, once sort of sent me a beautiful email and he said that he's starting the practice of writing haikus, little three-sentence uh, three, three poem, very short, kind of uh, Japanese haiku or Korean haiku. So it's this poem, very short poem, just noticing something and writing very shortly about it. And he said he used to be quite depressed. And he said doing that practice of haiku just listening, seeing, really open up, really opened up his experience. And so he kind of, in a way, he's making the haiku become like a meditation for him and really help with his uh, mental health difficulties. So yeah, very much so. What would you suggest to develop more concentration while questioning in meditation? So then generally the recommendation is to go back to the question, go back to the question, go back to the question. That's the way you develop the concentration. Or put the question with the breath as a kind of a rhythm. You start the question, what is this? Stay a little with the questioning, then back to the question, what is this? Generally, if you want to bring more concentration, you have to bring the question more in. That's what's recommended. Then holding what feels like rumination with the peace of silence, what is this? Arriving in the present and planning at the same time, half here, half elsewhere at the same time. Noticed not knowing where to place or what is it? 
sometimes we see it in meditation and it's like we have meditating, so half there and half somewhere else. And you're like, oh, and in a way, then just kind of be with that, be with that, uh, leave the what is this, and just be with what is this moment, just that, what is this moment, what is this being right now, that's what I would recommend. I notice I'm afraid of the hearing. I had lately lots of people shouting around me, and I notice with listening that I'm tense in fear for what is there to come, how to ease and to be more open. So that's one a little difficulty because at different times, we might be differently sensitized to sound. So what I would suggest actually, though I don't know if it's possible with the situation at the moment, is that in order to become more at ease with the listening, I would go either, like the lady said, putting a little kind of a tape or recording or on YouTube of uh, the sound of uh, rain, the sound of water, the sound of bird, so really putting something which is much more pleasant. Or if you can go outside in nature, listening to the sound of nature. And then when you, ha you are at home, Try not to focus uh, on the sound of, uh, you know, if people are shouting or whatever, you know, possibly when you are at home for a little while, don't so much listen uh, if there is a case that somebody could be shouting because that in a way can trigger you. But if you kind of cultivate listening to sound which are easeful and then slowly, slowly you bring the level of kind of triggering down and then maybe you can have a little more confidence uh, and equanimity with sound in general. When I meditate, I often find that my mind throws lots of beautiful creative solution and inspiration. I return to breath and the question, but how am I work with this phenomenon? The insights are welcoming the arising and also distracting at the same time. I think there is two different things. Is that we sit in meditation and actually, yeah, we can have some creative thought just out of the space that is being created because we're not so much in the automatic habit. So then, oh, you see this more clearly. And then just to experience it, to see it, and then let it go because after that it becomes uh, just repetition. But another thing we do sometimes in meditation, and I used to do that, and I don't do it anymore, is that I used to sit, and then I used to think about fantastic paragraphs to write in for my books, or fantastic title, and I used to, wow, this was wonderful. But then I realized this is occupying thought. Because generally, I never wrote the paragraph that way, I never used a title that way. And, and so I think to make the difference, between something which is insightful and creative, and then we can leave it aside, and more kind of entertainment, you could say, of kind of, you know, pleasant kind of creative thought. I think just kind of to see the difference. Or if it's really creative, then you could, if you're on your own, you could just write it down and then come back. So kind of notice the difference between something which is insightful and something which is more occupying. Okay. 
I experience joy with every new sound. I also write haiku. It's great. Uh, uh, this retreat, I have found that the questioning, uh, or in my case, not knowing practice, is strengthening my mindfulness outside of the meditation session as well as within it. It seems to be something about seeing the world afresh every moment. Yes. I think very much we see the questioning and the mindfulness practice very much together. And personally, I would say questioning, the questioning practice that all Buddhist practice helps us to be more mindful in a friendly, caring way, and very much in the present. So, of course. And then, in a way, you could nearly say naturally, mudita arrives. Like, it's not that we have to cultivate mudita. Uh, appreciative joy is naturally arises, uh, appreciative joy, this uh, gratitude. And I'm, we're going to stop. Okay, okay, then. Uh, I found the Japanese character on the wall behind you very inspiring, and my mind has been wondering what it symbolizes. It actually is mu, wu, and actually it means nothing. So it refers, uh, it's actually done by my teacher, Master Kuzan, and it kind of uh, this famous uh, koan uh, when Zhao uh, Chu, Stephen has already mentioned him, he's an ch ancient Chinese master, he's talking about Buddha nature and emptiness, and then he goes back to his room, and then a monk comes to see him, and on the way he sees a dog, and then the monk said to Master Chao Chu, as a dog, Buddha nature. And Master Chao Chu says, Woo, which could be no nothing. And this is also one of the practice, one of the way to cultivate some practice is actually why did Chao Chu said Mu, why Mu, etc. etc. So that's what is behind me. That's why. I put it, normally we, there we have a collage by Stephen. I thought it would be nice to have that during the retreat. Uh, okay. Then. So, thank you very much. Please keep well. See you this afternoon. Otherwise, have a good life in this corona time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.